I'm dermatologist and hair specialist, Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the February 28, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 4. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. Evidence-based hair is for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of topics, especially those related to safety. And today we'll be talking about six interesting studies published in the last month or so related to the safety of the treatments we prescribe for patients with hair loss. We'll be talking about minoxidil paresthesias, esophagitis from doxycycline, hair loss from methotrexate. We'll look at two medications and their risk of cancer, spironolactone and tofacitinib. And finally, we'll talk about an interesting side effect of paradoxical hypertrichosis, whereby patients that go in for laser hair removal find that they actually have increased hair. The references are in the show notes that accompany this episode. Let's begin by talking about minoxidil paresthesias. A very interesting study published in Dermatologic Therapy online in January looked at the concept of paresthesias from minoxidil, or this numbness and tingling from the use of minoxidil. Now, you're probably well aware that minoxidil has some side effects, such as increased shedding in the first month or two, hair growth on the face in anywhere from 5% to 10% of users, itching, especially itching in those using topical minoxidil solution, and rarely heart palpitations. But there's a large list of more uncommon side effects. Facial swelling, chest pain, blurred vision, paresthesias, dizziness, faintness, and allergy. And unless you're aware of this group of uncommon minoxidil symptoms, you'll probably miss it or you'll downplay the information that your patient is telling you. These certainly aren't common and good studies really haven't been done to quantify how common they are, but they certainly are reported by a number of patients. And today, we're going to look at paresthesias, or numbness and tingling. And so this study in dermatologic therapy looked at paresthesias in the hands. This was a 37-year-old man with alopecia areata who was started on minoxidil one milliliter a day. On the fifth day, he went up to two milliliters a day. He was treating an area of hair loss at the back of the scalp. He experienced irritant contact dermatitis from the minoxidil, which isn't uncommon with the minoxidil solution. He had redness. He had itching at the site where he was applying the minoxidil. 
but he also had numbness and paresthesias in the distribution of the median nerve. It started in the right hand and then moved to the left hand. His neurologic exam was normal. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of the distribution of the median nerve, it overlaps the thumb, the second finger, the third finger, and part of the fourth finger, and part of the palm of the hand. And this is where this patient was having numbness and tingling. He was recommended to stop the minoxidil, and the paresthesias disappeared in two days. So does this prove that minoxidil was the cause of this patient's paresthesias? No, it most certainly does not. But it's an interesting association, and it reminds us of something very important that I'd like to review with you today, and that is the Naranjo score. If you don't know what the Naranjo score is, I'd like to spend some time to review it. It's a really powerful tool to help you estimate the likelihood that a side effect is related to a medication. There are a number of online free calculators where you can calculate the Naranjo score whenever a patient tells you they're having a side effect and they think it's related to a medication. The Naranjo score consists of 10 questions, and you either answer yes or no to these 10 questions, or I don't know. So any of those three options. And depending on your answer, you'll be assigned a score for that question of either minus one, zero, plus one, or plus two. And then at the end, you tally up the score, and you can get some kind of an estimate as to the likelihood that the medication that your patient is using is causing the side effect that they're stating. And so here's the 10 questions. You ask the patient, or you contemplate yourself, are there any previous reports of this reaction my patient is telling me? Did the adverse event happen after the medication was given? Did the adverse event improve when the drug was stopped? Did the adverse event reappear when the drug was given back? Are there any alternative explanations? Did the reaction occur when the patient was given a placebo? Was the drug detected in any body fluid? Was the reaction more severe when the dose was increased, or was it less severe when the dose was decreased? Did the patient have a similar reaction to similar types of drugs? And was the adverse event confirmed with any objective evidence? And so you go through these 10 questions, you answer yes or no, or you don't know, and you come up with this score. There's lots of free online calculators, and I have many bookmarked on my computer. If the patient has a Naranjo score of less than 2, it's pretty doubtful that their medication is causing this side effect. If their score is 2 to 4, it's possible. If their score is 5 to 8, it's probable. And if their score is greater than 8, then it's definite. And so in this case, the Naranjo score was 4, indicating possible. So this patient's minoxidil is possibly causing the paresthesias. Of course, if this patient had been rechallenged and the paresthesias came back, if the dose was halved and the paresthesias improved but didn't go away, this would change his Naranjo score from possible to probable. 
Of course, we have to think about other issues that cause paresthesias in the distribution of the median nerve, but a really interesting study. And I would encourage you to be humble to the array of side effects that minoxidil causes. It is a very safe medication in general. Without minoxidil, my practice would most certainly not be the same. It is a very helpful medication for telling hair follicles to grow. And in many countries around the world, it's uh, without a prescription. And that speaks to the safety of this particular medication. But there are rare side effects that can occur. And if you don't have in your mind the possibility that what the patient is telling you could be a side effect of minoxidil, you're going to miss out a lot of these rare side effects. And over the years, I've had patients that have seen neurologists. I've had patients that have had MRI examinations, MRI scans for suspected multiple sclerosis. They did not have a neurologic disease. They did not have multiple sclerosis. They were having a side effect of minoxidil. Fortunately, it's rare, but these are the uncommon side effects of minoxidil. Every year, there's some patients that get really dizzy from minoxidil or have chest pain and end up in the emergency room. Is it common? No, it's not. But we need to be aware of these uncommon side effects of minoxidil. So from minoxidil, we turn to doxycycline and a rare side effect of esophagitis or inflammation in the esophagus. This was a study that was published in the Indian Journal of Gastroenterology dealing with doxycycline-induced esophagitis. So doxycycline is a medication which is used for scarring alopecia. We use it for lichen planopilaris, we use it for frontal fibrosing alopecia, CCCA, folliculitis decalvans, dissecting cellulitis. It's an antibiotic, but it has this very unusual property, as do all of the tetracycline class antibiotics, in that it can stop it can stop inflammation. But doxycycline can cause esophagitis. It has a low pH or an acidic pH when it's dissolved in solution. And so when it touches saliva, it becomes acidic, and this can irritate the esophagus. It has a direct toxic effect on the esophageal mucosa. The capsules are more likely to do this than the pills. They stick to the mucosa lining much more readily. And extended-release doxycycline is more likely to do this than the regular version. And so this study reported four patients that took doxycycline, not for scarring alopecia, but for prophylaxis against COVID-19. The authors stated that at this time in India, there was a wave of COVID-19 and many patients were using doxycycline despite the fact that it didn't have good evidence for treating COVID-19, but they were using doxycycline as well as other medications to try to treat or prevent the disease. And they stated that normally they see one case of doxycycline-induced esophagitis every four years, but here they were seeing four cases in just a span of a month. The patients presented with pain on swallowing, which we call odynophagia, and it happened within one hour or two hours of taking doxycycline. The patient stopped doxycycline, started sulcrophate, which is a medication which treated, treats stomach ulcers, 
and the patients recovered within five days. I really like this study because it reminds us of some important points about prescribing doxycycline. And this is important for any practitioner who uses doxycycline for lichen plano pilaris, FFA, CCCA, folliculitis, decalvans. Doxycycline should be taken with lots of water, a cup or two. A patient who takes it should sit upright. I always tell patients, don't take doxycycline, lie down, watch TV. That's the wrong approach. Don't take doxycycline with calcium or iron. It can block the absorption. And don't take it with vitamin C, as that can increase the chances of getting this acidity and limit alcohol use. There are many patients each year around the world who are prescribed doxycycline and they consume some additional alcohol, either for a celebration or some other reason that prompts them to consume a lot of alcohol. And many of these patients get doxycycline-induced esophagitis from the combination of alcohol causing esophagitis and doxycycline causing esophagitis. And certainly there are patients every year on, on holidays that will contact me stating that they're on doxycycline and they are in extreme chest pain as though they're having a heart attack. Of course, I want to make sure these patients aren't having a heart attack, but the question that I often will ask them is, are you consuming alcohol? And many of these patients are consuming excessive amounts of alcohol, and that dramatically increases the risk of doxycycline-induced esophagitis. Of course, doxycycline can do it on its own. How do we treat doxycycline-induced esophagitis? Well, we stop the medication as soon as possible, and we block the acid production with proton pump inhibitors, other antacids. We protect the esophageal mucosa with sulcrophate. We advise the patient to avoid hot foods, cold foods, because this just irritates the esophageal lining. And we advise them to avoid acidic foods. And we make sure the patient has close follow-up. If the patient has an extreme case of doxycycline esophagitis, and it's been going on for a long time, and they haven't sought medical attention, we need to be worried about more severe esophagitis and even perforation in rare cases. And so it is a serious issue that we need to take seriously. From doxycycline, we move to methotrexate. Methotrexate is used for many hair loss conditions. It's used for alopecia areata in children and adults. It's used for some scarring alopecias like lichen plano pilaris, rarely FFA, discoid lupus, systemic lupus. And many patients go into the pharmacy and the pharmacy tells them that this medication can cause an upset stomach, this medication may change your blood counts, and the pharmacist may also say this medication may also cause hair loss. And that's certainly confusing to our patients because they're using the medication to treat hair loss and here they're being told it can cause hair loss. Now, hopefully this is a side effect that you're counseling patients before they leave your clinic and head to the pharmacy. But what number do you have in your mind as to the chance of methotrexate causing hair loss? Well, the data is all over the place, anywhere from 0 to 26% when you look at all the studies in the literature. But an interesting study published in Rheumatology 
January 2022 online solidifies the number as being somewhere around 5 to 10%. And so I'd like to review this study with you because it's a nice study that really reinforces that this is probably the number that we should quote patients. So this was a study by Sherbini and colleagues, and they set out to examine the frequency of adverse events in patients with rheumatoid arthritis starting methotrexate. So these weren't hair loss patients, but these were patients with rheumatoid arthritis. The authors looked at a variety of adverse events that were happening after patients were on methotrexate, adverse events at the 0 to 6 month time point, 6 to 12 months, and then any time during the first year. There was a total of 1,069 patients, and overall, 77.5% experienced at least one adverse event. Side effects like GI side effects, neurologic side effects, mucocutaneous, lung, liver, hematologic. These are the expected side effects that, that patients on methotrexate can sometimes experience. How common was hair loss? 9.2% of patients had concerns about their hair over the 12 months of follow-up. What was interesting about this study, and the reason I like this study so much, is it highlighted that the risks were greater for women, those who were consuming alcohol, and those that had a higher health assessment questionnaire disability index. So a little more reflection of, of more severe disease. But it highlights something interesting that we don't think about a lot in our field, and that is that women may be at increased risk, up to five times more likely to have hair loss from methotrexate than are males. And so overall, this number, 5 to 10% is pretty reasonable to be quoting patients. It's not 2%, it's not 40%, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of patients that go on methotrexate may have some hair loss. Higher in women and higher with alcohol use. And so these are helpful tools that we can share with patients uh, as we're counseling them about the risks of hair loss. Many patients are quite fearful of the hair loss that could come with methotrexate. And so appropriate counseling is really what's needed. Let's talk now about cancer. Let's talk about the risk of cancer with spironolactone and the risk of cancer with a JAK inhibitor called tofacitinib. We'll begin first with a study examining the risks of cancer with spironolactone. A systematic review and meta-analysis was published in JAMA Dermatology in February 2022 online looking at the risk of cancer from spironolactone. I think this is a really important study because we use spironolactone a lot to treat androgenetic hair loss in women. So spironolactone is formally approved by the FDA for treatment of anything whereby there's more fluid on board. And it was approved in 1959, 1960 for heart failure, edema, ascites, hypertension, primary hyperaldosterism. About 10 years later, late 1960s, early 1970s, it was realized that spironolactone not only flushes fluid out of the body and treats blood pressure issues, but it's an antiandrogen. And so spironolactone increasingly became used for the treatment of androgenetic hair loss, hirsutism, 
and acne. Spironolactone carries a warning on the pamphlet. This is a warning that the FDA has required the companies to publish regarding the potential for spironolactone to cause tumors. And this comes from the fact that when spironolactone is studied in animals at doses 150 times greater than what is used in humans, it induces tumors. It induces, induces liver, testicular, breast adenomas. Does spironolactone cause cancer in humans? Well, certainly this has been studied for quite some time. And this particular meta-analysis gives us some answers. Let's take a look first at spironolactone and breast cancer and what we knew even before this study was published. Patients want to know about spironolactone and breast cancer. They know that they're being prescribed a medication to block hormones, and their question is often, does this medication affect hormone-dependent cancers? Well, there's three studies looking at spironolactone and breast cancer. McKenzie and colleagues published a study in 2017 with 74,000 patients. There was no increased risk of breast cancer. Bigger and colleagues published a study in 2013 with 2.3 million women, no increased risk of cancer with spironolactone. And McKenzie published another study in 2012, this time with 1.2 million women, no increased risk of breast cancer in spironolactone users. So the data to date with these three studies has been pretty encouraging that there doesn't seem to be an increased risk of breast cancer with spironolactone. So, of course, we would expect a meta-analysis of all the breast cancer data to suggest that there's no increased risk, but a meta-analysis had not been done prior to this study that I'm about to review with you. But also, what I liked about this meta-analysis, which was published in JAMA Dermatology, is the authors looked at the risks of other types of cancers as well. And so the authors set out to determine the pooled occurrence of cancers amongst patients that were ever treated with spironolactone. Seven studies met the author's eligibility criteria, and they had a total of 4.5 million patients in this study. It included both men and women. Women used spironolactone for androgenetic hair loss, acne, hirsutism, but we need to remember that Men are prescribed low doses of spironolactone as well for heart failure, ascites, so fluid-related issues as well. We don't use spironolactone for androgenetic hair loss in men, but it's certainly used at low doses, 25 milligrams, for fluid retention-related issues. And so this study looked at many cancers, prostate, breast, ovarian, bladder, kidney, gastric, esophageal. For breast cancer, there was no significant association between spironolactone use and breast cancer. So that was somewhat expected based on these three studies that I mentioned earlier. What about these other cancers? If spironolactone truly doesn't have this tumorogenicity, if it truly doesn't have this tendency to drive cancers, then it should not show up as a, any kind of a signal with other cancers. And indeed, it didn't. In fact, there was a decreased risk of prostate cancer. That's not surprising when you think about it, because we know antiandrogens decrease the risk of prostate cancer in men. Finasteride and dutasteride are known to decrease the risk of prostate cancer in males. 
But the risk of ovarian cancer, bladder cancer, kidney, gastric, and esophageal cancer was not increased amongst spironolactone users. So a really encouraging study that spironolactone doesn't seem to have any kind of a cancer signal for these main types of cancers. And so when patients in the clinic ask, does spironolactone increase the risk of cancer? Certainly in women of average risk for cancer, it doesn't. There's still some question as to whether women of other subgroups, like women who are at extremely high risk for breast cancer, would be any different. We don't know that answer. But spironolactone is now being studied in patients who have breast cancer to treat their androgenetic hair loss. And studies have shown that it doesn't seem to increase the risk of recurrence in the early years after a breast cancer diagnosis. We don't have data for long-term follow-up, but certainly the data so far is very encouraging that spironolactone doesn't seem to impact the risk of breast cancer. And so now let's shift gears and talk about the risk of cancer with tofacitinib, as well as the risk of cardiovascular disease. This is a very important study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January 2022. We need to know about JAK inhibitors as hair loss specialists because we use JAK inhibitors. We use JAK inhibitors for treating alopecia areata, tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, baricitinib. These are all used for alopecia areata. But we also use JAK inhibitors for lichen plano pilaris, FFA, folliculitis decalvans. So we need to have a good understanding about the safety of JAK inhibitors. Tofacitinib is certainly the best studied of the JAK inhibitors in alopecia areata. But we need to remember that we don't actually have any good long-term studies in the hair loss literature. And so we need to get our clues about the long-term safety of JAK inhibitors from the rheumatoid arthritis literature, where patients are studied in much larger numbers. The largest studies that we have with tofacitinib in alopecia areata is 100 to 200. We don't have studies in the thousands. And patients have only been using tofacitinib for alopecia areata for three, four, five years. Whereas in rheumatoid arthritis, patients have been using JAK inhibitors since they were approved about a decade ago. And there's lots of patients that are using tofacitinib for rheumatoid arthritis. We just don't have that kind of long-term follow-up in our hair loss patients. And the size of our patient populations is nowhere near the size of the patient populations with rheumatoid arthritis. So if you want to understand long-term safety of tofacitinib, we need to look at the rheumatoid arthritis publications. And so tofacitinib was approved by the FDA in 2012 for treating challenging cases of rheumatoid arthritis. It's not approved for alopecia areata. It's not approved for scarring alopecia, but we use it off-label. But when tofacitinib was approved, the FDA said to the manufacturer that you need to keep studying patients long-term in post-marketing studies. This is nothing particular with tofacitinib. Most drugs, after they're released to the public, have to be studied in long-term post-marketing studies. That's just a requirement after a medication is released to the world. And so the long-term post-marketing study that the FDA required 
is called the Oral Surveillance Study. And so the FDA wanted to see data about the safety of tofacitinib compared to other treatments for rheumatoid arthritis, particularly the TNF inhibitors or tumor necrosis factor inhibitors. And the FDA was involved in the design of this post-marketing study. They really wanted to know, is tofacitinib as safe as the TNF inhibitors? And so the oral surveillance study is the name of this study that the FDA required after tofacitinib was released to the public. And it was carried out between 2014 and 2020. And so it was a randomized trial comparing the safety and efficacy of tofacitinib as compared to a TNF inhibitor. It was adalimumab in the North American patient groups, and it was a Tanercep in other parts of the world. And so it was tofacitinib compared to a TNF inhibitor in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who were 50 years of age and older, had at least one cardiovascular risk factor, like cigarette smoking, hypertension, low HDL, diabetes, history of coronary artery disease, or a family history of heart disease. And patients in this study had to be tried on methotrexate first for their rheumatoid arthritis, and they didn't get better. And so they went on either tofacitinib or a TNF inhibitor, and most stayed on methotrexate as well. And so that's the population that was studied in this study. So there was three groups, a tofacitinib group using 5 milligrams twice a day, a tofacitinib group using five, uh, 10 milligrams twice a day, and those using a TNF inhibitor. Again, adalimumab in North America, etanercept in other parts of the world. But something happened in February 2019, and that is the safety monitoring board for the company said, halt, pause. The group identified an increased risk of pulmonary embolism or blood clots in the lung and increased death in those using 10 milligrams twice a day. And so all those patients in the 10 milligram twice a day group were switched to a 5 milligram twice a day group. And the study continued. And the endpoints, the primary endpoints, were to look at the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events like death from heart disease or non-fatal heart attacks or non-fatal strokes, as well as the risk of cancer. So these are the primary endpoints. So what are the results? Well, tofacitinib had a different risk for cardiovascular events than a TNF inhibitor. 3.4% of patients with tofacitinib had a cardiovascular event versus 2.5% using a TNF inhibitor. The hazard ratio was 1.33, but what is important this study was a unique study known as a non-inferiority study. And before the study started, the authors said, or the investigators said, that if the upper range of the confidence interval was more than 1.8, then we are going to say that we can't be sure that there's really not an increased risk. And so this was important because to the authors, it indicated that it wasn't clear that tofacitinib truly was of the same risk for cardiovascular events as the TNF inhibitor. For cancer, it was even more clear. 4.2% of those using tofacitinib had a cancer compared to 2.9% using a TNF inhibitor. Here, the hazard ratio was 1.48 and the confidence interval was above 1. It did not cross one. The indication here is that tofacitinib has a 48% greater chance 
of causing cancer or being associated with cancer than a TNF inhibitor. Really important information for us to think about and talk about. Now, compared to a TNF inhibitor, tofacidin have increased the risk of opportunistic infections, herpes zoster or shingles, and non-melanoma skin cancer as well. These were the secondary endpoints. So what do we conclude from this study? Well, what we can conclude is that if you have rheumatoid arthritis and you're 50 years of age or older and you have a cardiovascular risk factor, like being a cigarette smoker, having high blood pressure, having low HDL, having diabetes, having coronary artery disease, or having a family history of heart disease, and if you're on methotrexate but not improving, then if you go on a JAK inhibitor, you have a higher risk of cancer and maybe a higher risk of cardiovascular disease endpoints than a TNF inhibitor. So that's really what we can conclude with this study. It's really important that we spend time reflecting on the patient population that was studied in this particular study. So what does it mean for our hair loss patients? What does it mean for a 22-year-old female who wants to start a JAK inhibitor for alopecia areata? Are there increased risks of cancer? What about a 34-year-old male who wants to start a JAK inhibitor for scarring alopecia? Is there an increased risk of cancer? What about cardiovascular disease? Well, this particular study applies to those with rheumatoid arthritis, 50 years of age or older, having cardiovascular risk factors, and being on methotrexate. Very different than our patient populations that we see for our hair loss conditions. And so that's really important to take into account. The data doesn't apply directly to our patients in the same way, and so it's challenging to interpret. And so I'd like to speak about a few points that are really relevant as hair specialists think about this oral surveillance study data. First, patients with rheumatoid arthritis are at a higher risk for cardiovascular events compared to patients in the general population. And so patients with rheumatoid arthritis may have a different risk than our hair loss patients. So that's really important to consider. TNF inhibitors seem to decrease the risk of cardiovascular events. And so more study is going to be needed to determine if JAK inhibitors actually increase the risk of these cardiovascular events, or is it simply that the TNF inhibitors do such a good job to decrease the risk of cardiovascular events. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis are also at higher risk for cancer compared to patients in the general population. And they may be at higher risk for cancer than patients with the hair loss conditions that we treat in the clinic. And so this is important as well as we interpret this study. There may be differences in baseline risk for cancer. The cancer risks for tofacidin were somewhat of, of a surprise in this study to many rheumatologists, but it certainly does seem to suggest that tofacitinib in this patient population, 50 and over with rheumatoid arthritis, with cardiovascular risk factors on methotrexate, are at higher risk for cancer. And the data is concerning to some of our rheumatology colleagues, and some are contemplating what to do, whether to change their prescribing practices and how this will affect their patient populations. It's really not clear if it does affect our patient groups at all. And so we don't know if these apply to all the JAK inhibitors. This is a study of tofacitinib. Does it apply to ruxolitinib, baricitinib, and all the other JAK inhibitors that are on their way? We just don't know, but the FDA has been very clear 
that we need to take this seriously. And so the FDA has stated that uh, we need to, for now, consider this a class effect, and we need to uh, think about this with all of the JAK inhibitors. And so we really need long-term studies in alopecia areata. And if we're going to use JAK inhibitors in scarring alopecia, then we need long-term studies in scarring alopecia. The baseline risk for cardiovascular disease and cancer is almost certainly different in alopecia areata and scarring alopecia compared to rheumatoid arthritis. And the baseline risk for these diseases may be different in alopecia areata compared to scarring alopecia. So we need good long-term studies in our patient populations. We can't continue to look into the rheumatology literature for all of our answers. We need these long-term studies. But for now, we have this oral surveillance study, and it's really important to reflect on the patient population in that study. The risks of cancer were highest in older individuals, especially smokers. And so is a 22-year-old female about to start a JAK inhibitor who is a non-smoker without cardiovascular risk factors with alopecia areata and not rheumatoid arthritis? Does she have any increased risk of these issues? We just don't know, but more studies are certainly needed. And so finally, we'll talk about another side effect, paradoxical hypertrichosis. So paradoxical hypertrichosis refers to the increased hair that appears when laser hair removal is performed. We expect laser hair removal to remove hairs, and in paradoxical hypertrichosis, the patient has increased hair. And so there was a study in the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology, which I really liked because it was a meta-analysis of all the studies that were performed looking at paradoxical hypertrichosis. Laser hair removal is one of the most common cosmetic procedures. About a million procedures are done every year. Lots of different lasers can be used to remove hair. The NDEAG is common, Alexandrite, Ruby, intense pulse light or IPL systems can also be used. And the laser targets melanin in the hair follicle and it causes a selective thermolysis and that causes the hair to fall out. And so paradoxical hypertrichosis is very important to understand because not everybody gets removal of hair. And so Snast and colleagues performed a systematic review and meta-analysis to determine the prevalence of paradoxical hypertrichosis and also to look at the risk factors. They studied 9,733 patients. They had 22 studies that they evaluated in their meta-analysis, two randomized and 20 cohort studies. The lasers in the studies that they found included alexandrite, IPL, diode, NDEAG. The sites at which patients were undergoing hair removal was face and neck, axilla, groin, limbs, torso. Most patients were having hair removal on the face and neck. 22 of these studies were um, divided into 19 with type 3-4 skin, so moderate skin types, and two of the 22 were of lighter skin types. And the interval between laser treatments ranged from 28 days to 90 days. So what were the results? Well, paradoxical hypertrichosis was estimated to occur in 3% of patients. 
and it was associated with a face or a neck location in the vast majority of these cases, and only 0.08% were in another area. The treatment modality, the laser type, didn't seem to make a difference on the chances of paradoxical hypertrichosis, nor did the interval between treatments. Paradoxical hypertrichosis occurs in about 3% of patients, and what is also very helpful for us as practitioners is that hair loss or removal of hair occurred finally in a large proportion of patients once the laser treatments were continued, and this was found in three of the four studies. So overall, Paradoxical hypertrichosis occurs mainly on the face and neck area, doesn't depend on the laser, doesn't depend on the interval between treatments, and with continued treatment, we would expect some reduction in hair density. And so that's it for this week, everyone. To recap, we talked about some side effects, including minoxidil paresthesias, doxycycline esophagitis, the 5 to 10% chance of hair loss with methotrexate, the good safety for spironolactone and the fact that it doesn't have a cancer signal for many of the cancers that were studied. We talked about the oral surveillance study and the increased risk of cancer and possibly cardiovascular disease with JAK inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis patients 50 and over with cardiovascular risk factors on methotrexate and we talked about paradoxical hypertrichosis and the 3% risk of paradoxical hypertrichosis. Thanks for listening to this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. We have come not only to the end of an episode, but the end of our very first month together. We reviewed 34 studies, including studies in alopecia areata, androgenetic hair loss in week one, telogen effluvium, traction, alopecia, trichotillomania, tinea capitis in week two. In week three, scarring alopecia, and we talked about FFA, LPP, central centrifugal, cicatricial alopecia, and folliculitis decalvans. And here, six additional studies looking at side effects. Let us know what you think about our content. Please rate or comment wherever you're listening today. And if you'd like to connect with our office to learn more about our training programs at the Donovan Hair Academy, please feel free to email us. Our email address is info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back. It's the first Monday of the month, and so we're talking about androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair.